You're listening to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine. Mike knows like so, like the biggest names in comedy. Dude, you gotta see this guy's fucking show list. He like has like the biggest names on uh, in comedy on his on his show. It's kind of unreal, Mike, how you do that. The best po- panel pod on the internet. This is what the show's about, Nick. Did we ever finger on the pulse of America's uh, trends? What are the topics, Mike? What are the topics? This whole day can suck a thousand fucking dicks. Yeah, boy. Welcome to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine. From Muscatine to the Silver Street. Wait, it's a podcast? From Muscatine, Iowa to your AirPods? Here's Mike. I'm Mike Bridenstine. Shout out Rick Gonzalez. Shout out Bad Planet. Shout out to my unpaid announcer, Tony Tone Lokensoul. Hi, everybody. First of all, I want to thank everybody who watched my YouTube special so far. It was fun to chat with you guys live. And some of you donated money, which I greatly appreciate. Thank you for that. Numbers are okay, but I need to keep pushing it. Until I get into the suggested videos algorithm on YouTube. So if you haven't checked it out yet for whatever fucking reason, live from the Glendale Room on YouTube.com slash Mike Bridenstine. Maybe you'll like it. Okay, another deep dive today. I've talked a little bit on the show about the growing slash exploding clown scene in L.A., and how it's becoming a fourth genre of comedy after stand-up sketch and improv. It's way different than the type of clowning you're probably familiar with. If you want that type of clowning, check out my interview with Gilly the Clown. That's real and recent. This type of clowning that I'm going to talk about today, or just clown, is a performance that thrives in chaos and failure, and I want to say it's actually still kind of figuring itself out. Well, Chad Demiani is one of the pioneers of that scene and one of the main people helping define what this is. He also does a stand-up act with characters that fucking kill me. I had to follow him one time at our bar, and I was actually mad <laughs> that I had to follow him. And he worked at WCW during the Monday Night Wars also. Just like the world's most interesting man here on the show. So I definitely wanted to ask him about that too. If you don't know what WCW was, which is entirely possible, it was the main competitor to WWE slash WWF in the 80s and 90s. It was called WWF then. Especially when they got Ted Turner's money. And when Hulk Hogan, like the number one guy turned into a bad guy and joined NWO, their product and their shows were kicking WWF's ass. This was a huge deal in my little world in high school, so I had to ask him about this. He's he's pioneering a comedy form, and I'm asking him about WCW. If you don't want that, fast forward 30 minutes. I just had to ask. This was great. I probably wrote down more things and more ideas about things to think about as I perform than any other interview that I've done. I think that if you like comedy at all or think about comedy at all, you will find this fascinating. I had a great time. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Chad Demiani. I do want to talk about clown, but I would feel like I was robbing myself and everybody if I did not talk about WCW. 
And so I wanted to know about your time there. How did you get involved in, in working there? I don't want to eat up too much of the podcast, but it's an epic. It's one of the truly epic stories. And to this day, often when I like have what I view as bouts of bad luck or bad timing, I'm reminded of this incident and be like, and I'm like, maybe I used it all up. Like all, maybe, all your all luck. my good fortune for life. <laughs> Um, I had in 1996, I had been down in Atlanta working on this weird sort of like half website, half network project that was like doomed to failure called SPIV. And, uh, I was young. I was like in my early twenties and that was a total, like I was there for about 10 months. The project was a money pit. Eventually I moved back up to New York to write plays and stuff, but I'd met a bunch of people who were the um the pioneers of wcw.com when i was down there and so generously they were sending me work for the website like i would watch i love wrestling i'm a huge wrestling fan and i would watch all the wcw shows and write recaps okay and so that became this way i was kind of slightly i was a starving artist very broke but that was bringing in regular money and then they were like hey there's a way you can make even more money if you want and as Brido was saying, at the time, there was this um, angle or a storyline called the New World Order. To this day, I'd say a top three storyline in wrestling, uh, where uh, it was sort of a perception was created that the WWF had invaded the WCW. Yeah. And they were using this New World Order moniker. But the idea was that finally, these rival wrestling companies were battling each other. And they were marketing the shit out of it, licensing it in every way you can imagine. So one of the things was hotlines. I don't know. Hopefully you weren't one of those kids that called the hotlines. Bro. I, I know that I must have given money to Mean Gene Okerlund at some point. It's <laughs> uh, $1.99 a minute and you'd call. And on the WCW hotline, it was Gene Okerlund and Tony Schiavone, I think, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. But they wanted to have an NWO hotline. But the idea was it was going to be like Hulk Hogan, Hollywood Hogan. Yeah. Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Macho Man Randy Savage. Can you even imagine the talent wrangling to say like, hey, guys, at some point in your day, we just need you to stop and leave a 10-minute voicemail. Like They were like, so they needed a backup because if people called and got the same message two days in a row, then they could ask for their money back. And so they were like, well, you've been writing these reports and you're an actor, right? You live in, uh, in, um, in New York. Do you want to be the backup? You'd have to stay up till midnight every night. And at 12.01, call in. And if you hear the same message from the day before, immediately record a message. We don't care what it is. We don't care what the content of this message is. And that way we can't be sued to get the money back. Um, and they were like, but be ready. We're going to pay you $150 a recording because these guys will probably go weeks and weeks and weeks not missing. Like now, as I say it, I keep laughing. Like these guys are not going to miss. So we're paying you this extra money for the inconvenience of you going, getting up every night. Um, of course I wasn't getting up. I was in my twenties. I was yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like, okay, that sounds good. From jump street, Brido, These guys don't record a single message. So, <laughs> There are months and months of me just having to generate content at 12.01 a.m. Who are you when you're doing it? Are you are you Macho Man or who are you? I, I create a persona, a total joke based on when my friends and I in college watched Raw, which I had a character I would play called the Deli Boy. Okay. Like we would all get dressed up like a bunch of nerds. 
and we'd watch wrestling and we'd all be wrestlers, you know, <laughs> we were way too old for this. Everybody and, did this though. This is, yeah, this is great. I, yeah, I know. I, I feel like too, your, your listening base is like, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yes. Yes. I was, uh, yeah. The Miz was this, I mean, that's how this, yeah, it's all of us. Mick Foley and, did this. And we were all bodybuilders too. in um, in college too. So like we were just even lamer, you know, we like would have our shirts off and like, and I was the deli boy. Why is it lamer to be like believable? <laughs> Well, I think, I think, I don't know. I think actually in some strange way, like it was less honorable to actually look maybe one fourth the part. I disagree. I feel like you. if you don't look at it all, it's obviously cosplay. <laughs> okay. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> so I named myself the deli boy just as a joke to pop my friends from college. And I, I would, I had this thing I would say where I'd be like, this is the deli boy bringing you all the WCW news, uh, slicing it thin and stacking it high. I said that one time just out of nowhere, and I'm like, I guess that's what I say. It's good. It makes no sense. It's it's good. So I did a couple of them, and man, 10 minutes talking is so hard when yeah. you have no information. Yeah. Um, so I enlist my roommate, who eventually became my writing partner for many, many years in, in Los Angeles. This is how this started, too? Oh yeah, this is how I be- so so I enlist him. I go, hey, listen, I'll I'll buy weed. Like I wasn't gonna give him my money, but I was like, I will buy all the weed and booze for the week for for our house if you help me with these messages. Your writing like, oh. partner that you've done like all of this stuff with. This is how yeah. the- same guy. Okay, this your luck is insane. Right, like it's just this confluence of things, and we would do these parody ten minutes where <laughs> we would. We, we, we'd kind of talk for like two minutes before and then we'd just improvise and I was the uh, straight man interviewer and he'd play all the characters and we had like characters like Unfit Finley because there was a guy named Fit Finley yeah. and so all he'd do is he'd be like just give me one second Deli <laughs> right? and like I'd be like listen we really gotta get moving oh I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do Right. So like it was all really bad jokes like that. Like we had these two French um, wrestlers called the lay interrupters and all it would be would be be like lay interrupters. We need to talk. And they'd be going to just keep interrupting me like we do 10 minutes of like the broadest shtick you've ever heard. What I don't know is while I am checking the hotline at 1201 a.m., someone at 701 a.m., in Smyrna, Georgia, who works at the WCW offices out there, they have to check that I did my job. So whoever this person was, I guess they were getting a kick because we were just basically making fun of the show, like just making fun of the show. So then it became kind of this tradition down in the office. From what I'm told, I was never there for this, that, you know, up to a dozen people would gather for their coffee and their donut and they'd listen to me make fun of the show every morning, right? So here I am just starving eating shit in New York, bombing, can't get a play up to save my life, can't get any work. But I'm kind of like this mild celebrity <laughs> in Smyrna, Georgia with the, and I'm talking just like with travel accounting. These are not people of yeah, any yeah, importance yeah. in terms of story. This all builds up. I don't know about any of this. Um, they decide WCW.com to do their first improv paper listen. Paper listen. I'm not saying that wrong. It was going to be online they were using some technology where you would see a screen grab of the feed every three seconds. So it was just like crazy ass frozen shots that meant nothing. That's the way I watched pay-per-views with like the wavy lines. on. Yeah, yeah, it was exactly the same. We were charging (laughs) something for that. 
And they had like Sting and Macho Man Randy Savage and the, and the Outsiders were going to be there. And they asked me, because the budget was so low, they said, would you take the train from New York to Boston and run cable for our sound guy? Because, you know, and I was so up for this. I was like, oh my God, am I going to get to meet a bunch of wrestlers? This is so cool. Took the train up. I get there. I'm in jean shorts. I still remember. I'm in jean shorts, which were acceptable then <laughs> to a degree. Um, I was in um, like work boots. Like I just like, I would just look like a, like a kind of like a college pirate. And I'm literally wrapping cable, Brido, around my, like, cause I'm wrapping cable. And this guy, Tom Hunt runs up to me and he goes, Gene Okerlund just got food poisoning. He had a bad chicken focaccio sandwich at the Marriott. I remember this line perfectly. Like I remember every detail of it and I'm like, oh man. And they're like, no one else is here to announce just, it's supposed to be Gene and Mark Madden. I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. I don't know. What are you going to do? You're going to cancel. I still, and they're like, you have to do it. I was like, what? They're like, you're the hotline guy. You, you're the only person with any, and I'm like, I have no experience announcing at all. Like I did not study communications. I was an English major. I, I'm not a sports fan. Um, I'd only listened to like, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of commentating. I'd never done it. And before I know it, I'm walking out down the walkway of a sold out Boston garden. Two seconds before the show's about to start dressed like i said in like a chamay flannel jean shorts like i look like a piece of shit and i sit down next to mark madden who is not a nice person um i, I have a fondness for mark but he's not nice yeah and uh and he's like who the fuck are you he didn't even know who I was. And i'm like i'm announcing he goes what are you talking about and they start to explain it to him on the headset and before we know it the show's starting and i'll never forget the first match um greg the hammer valentine was in the first match and I say a couple things, but I'm like stuttering over my words and like eventually uh, Madden just takes over. Oh, you were, like you were play by play. Yeah. I was supposed to be play by play. Cause this Madden is such color. a bad idea in fairness. Terrible. To no experience. And I'm sitting there and I realize, like, well, it's all over. The hotline's gone. The recaps are gone. This isn't, <laughs> I was like, I don't give a shit anymore. I was like, I'm just going to do what I do with my friends. And I started making fun of um, Greg, the hammer Valentine. Cause he had a hammer uh, on the back of his tights, lying across his ass cheeks, he had a, a claw hammer. That was, and I was like, "What do you think?" It like I just started basically doing like bad stand up of like, like why would you put a hammer across? What do you think that says to your opponent? Like I said, and I would be like, "I know what that says if you're walking around Chelsea at one in the morning." I don't know what. Like I was just like really digging in, and Madden's laughing, but he's like, "Oh boy, you know this guy. You know I don't know who this guy is. He's about to get fired." And all of a sudden, I hear. The un, the un, indistinct, the very distinct voice of Scott Hall in my ear, ear set. They're listening backstage, <laughs> Hall and Nash, and they think what I'm doing is so funny because that's what they do, right? They make fun of yeah, everybody. Yeah. They start joining in with us, watching the monitor in the back. And so now all four of us are making fun of the show. And this goes on the entire, right out the entire show is the four of us. I've never met these two guys. I am starstruck. I mean, they're they're monsters. They're like six foot six and seven foot tall. Yeah. And and we're just like all just chopping it up like old friends. They come out eventually for a cage match. It was Sting, Macho Man, I think, versus the Outsiders. Total like 
they had bats hidden. They beat up the baby faces. Like food is being thrown at the ring. They're feeding. I remember Kevin Nash fed me like a curly fry through the cage because we were right <laughs> ringside. And it was like this amazing night. But I left there believing I had this was over. I would be looking for new work. What a fun way for this ride to end. I knew it couldn't last forever. What I don't know, and again, I'm I'm told this third party. Uh, I guess uh, Hall and Nash went to Bischoff and said, oh, this kid was really funny. You should hire Bischoff him. is like the Vince McMahon kind of, not uh, Ted Turner is the Vince McMahon, but he was in charge of basically yeah, the show. Uh, yeah, kind of like, yeah, Vince energy in terms of he was in charge of creative and they were like, he was part of the NWO, I believe at this time already, though I don't remember. A lot of that stuff is gray. And they kind of advocated for me. And at the time they were bringing on just a few new like personalities and announcers for different things. And so I just a week later got offered a contract. It was more money than I'd ever seen. I mean, by today's standards, not a ton, but like for me, amazing. And I was now a full-time announcer for world championship wrestling. This question is about to be psychotic, but it's, it'll be important to me. What about what month of 96 is this? month so no 96 is when i was um oh so you come in it's like 97 or 98 97 97 okay. like so and it's and it's in the fall of 97 i remember like it's before christmas okay so <laughs> this is at the height of wcw like in the monday night wars this is like the height of nwo like hulk hollywood hogan they're about to do starcade 97 which is like yeah all of my friends get on pay-per-view like this is as big as wrestling gets and you're doing joke ups and they are like, Hey kid, take the fucking keys. Can you imagine too, just how, how hate I hated I must've been. Oh, you jumped by, over like, so many people I jumped over so many people. And again, just by just being there. And also the idea that they were supposed to be the outsiders, like at beyond the name of their tag team, that they were supposed to be coming from nowhere. And, and, and then I had more good luck in that there was, um, there was a guy named Jeff Katz who had kind of been like a teen radio personality in I think Michigan. And he was like covering wrestling and stuff like that. And he was friends with a guy named Zane Bresloff, who was a big time promoter. And Jeff had come in on this also this deal of like oh we're bringing in all these young people but jeff was like 18 years old he went on to do some cool stuff he worked for new line and like got some he was uh, one of the people behind freddie versus jason and stuff like that like a real industrious kid but at the time he thought it was cool like to come to work and be like i didn't watch the shows this week you know like because he, he's like a teenager that's what seems like a cool thing to say to your heroes <laughs> and so eventually he kind of talked his way out so even coming in i had someone ahead of me who just essentially sabotage themselves uh, like just as I'm coming in. And, you know, I got paired very early with uh, a guy named stagger Lee Marshall. Are you familiar with Lee oh. Marshall? Keep going. I, 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 Lee Marshall, he had the super deep voice. Hey, this is uh this is stagger Lee Marshall. And he had come from the AWA territories. He was friends with Bischoff. Okay, Bischoff and, is from A. Yes, I Stagger yeah. Lee in my head is like a character played by JYD when he was like in a mask or something. He did have a Stagger Lee, I think. This this Lee Marshall's claim to fame, rest in peace, Lee. Lee was not very good to me, but I, you know, I have no ill will. I mean, I, I also realize he was an older guy in a changing industry who saw all this like people coming in and out, and like I think he just felt like he might have been passed on his turn for the big the big table, you know. 
And um, but Lee's story that used to always make me laugh, and he never told it to be funny, but he, one of his great losses in life was he was almost Tony the Tiger. <laughs> and he would tell this story, dead, Brido, dead serious, he'd tell the story about how he was in the final audition Oh, with dude. the guy who eventually became Tony the Tiger. Oh my god. And and the guy who became Tony the Tiger was like, "You you can go in first. I'm, I he goes I and like he had to, Lee go in first. I don't this is Lee's story whether it's true or not. And so Lee goes in and goes, "It's great. They're great." great. <laughs> and he's like thinking he nailed it and then this guy walks in and he holds the great like great and he said Lee knew immediately just hearing it like that this guy had like, you know, <laughs> cracked the code or, and then this guy ends up getting this job fast forward, by the way, to years later in the last years of Lee's life, that guy had died and Lee did get the job almost 35, 40 years. Later. A, he almost sang bad to the bone and he went in there and he goes, I'm bad. And then the guy after him came in and goes, bad. Exactly. Exactly. It's like one of the great, and he never, but he never said it like it was funny. He would always be like, Oh man, imagine if i had just taken a breath and saw the possibilities if i just played with the words that's tough luck man that's hard times yeah. daddy uh how does wrestling and your time in it inform and being a fan of it inform your comedy it's such a great question and the truth is it took me so long i think one of the things like i'm 50 years old and one of the things i'd say in the last eight years, so in my 40s, which is fairly old, was finally realizing that everything you learn is part of a body of knowledge that informs who you are presently. I think I spent a lot of time thinking that like every time I moved on to a new pursuit, that was its own thing and had its own set of rules and that the things I'd done before didn't necessarily matter. Mm. And it was when... Because I'd been doing, so I'd come out here and I had been doing some traditional improv and stuff like that. And I was just trying to succeed within the rules of that stuff. And it was when I kind of found Clown and I started seeing the audience and playing with the audience that all of a sudden it just clicked that like all that matters for me comically is this relationship. Like if I can get this audience to love me or hate me or feel deeply for me, want me back, if I can sort of really capture them in the moment, the ideas are meaningless. This get, is, and this is just me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like, and that's what I think great wrestlers do. Getting over. They get over. One guy goes over, one guy gets over, right? That's the old saying. Like, you know, in the loss, you should gain more value than in the victory because the victory has inherent value. And so- I think for me, I was always trying to to go over. You know, I was always trying to be the funniest. I was always trying to say the funniest thing. And then when I focused on getting over, that I just wanted them to be thrilled I was there. I was like, life got so much easier and my comedy changed so dramatically um, because I could chase the opposite knowing that like I was in a game with the audience, like that they were like, they were entertained by the idea of how I was approaching them and like the angle that I took and that that made them want to engage with me more. And I didn't have to sort of play by the metric. Cause honestly, there are just so many people who are funnier than I am. Like 
just so many people who are better at a turn of phrase or better at like a killer punchline and like all these other things that I'm, I love to watch. I'm envious of, but no one can be me on stage. Like no one Mm -hmm. can be me and no one can sort of endear an audience to them for the qualities that I have. And like, that was just such an eye opening experience. So in WrestleMania six, Hogan loses to the ultimate warrior. In the process, he hands the belt over kind of graciously to the warrior. And people have always said, like, Hulk Hogan was the star of that match. Like, everyone's looking at Hogan go sadly back down the aisle. What is that for comedy, then? Well, for me, for me, like, it works a lot of ways. So let's just, like, for instance, I often play, like, a villain in Clown. And, you know, like... In clown work, you know, I have a show called Stand Up and Clown at the Elysian where I bring up stand-ups up and essentially make them do silent clown work. And I'm ruthlessly criticizing them and like trying to reduce them to rubble. And in doing so, what I end up doing is getting the audience to really root for these people who have everything going for them. These are like successful. These are these are stand-ups that are working, that are funny, that have all the validation and respect that they probably want. And and so for me, can I tell you something? They probably yeah. don't have all that they want, or they would still be doing. That's it. true. I, they, all they should want. Yeah. <laughs> very want, fair. They have all very they should want. Very fair clarification. <laughs> yeah. More than they need. Yeah. Yeah. But probably not all that they want. But like, yeah. they're they're in a position that an audience could certainly view them as um, certainly not underdogs. Right. So. Like through that show, like this is an example of what you're talking about with Hogan in WrestleMania Six. I am slowly losing my power to the audience, right? Because the audience is choosing to um, revolt against me and cheer them on despite how bad their performance is, like, because they're really trying. And in doing so, they become the champions. Okay. But at the end of the day, I am still the center of the story. You know, the story is I'm in complete control. And then through the sheer joy and play and courage and foolishness of these players, I am slowly dethroned till at the end of the show, the audience really revels in, you know, Anna, Serangina and Kyle Mazzono, who are like part of the show. They, they always end the show and they just go out and have a good time. And the audience is like clapping along, but it's not like by any means articulated nuanced clown work. It is just a, just a disaster, but it's so fun. But for the audience, and this is my opinion, as much as they're cheering on Kyle and Anna, they're really just luxuriating in my failure. Okay. So I'm the center of it, you know? So they walk away maybe feeling like, oh man, that's so funny, you know, like that he got his just desserts, but I'm still the subject of the sentence, you know? It's not like I'm so I'm so happy for Anna and Kyle that they, they You got won. beat. You, I got beat. Yeah, you. I, I got I got whooped, and uh, and so like that understanding of like how to central, uh, you know, center yourself in the story, in wow. the comedy and stuff. Because sometimes don't and, and Brido like again, I don't think it's a bad thing. And I think some people are really good at it. The ideas are the centerpiece. Yeah, if it's if it, if ideas are the centerpiece, then you are judged simply on the merit of ideas, and but if you're the centerpiece. Now you have this relationship with the audience that is making everything totally subjective, you know, because they're just deciding whether they want you there. 
See, I, I, I would love to believe that the ideas are the thing. I, I truly think that the audience watches you walk to a microphone as a stand-up, and they decide before you say anything. Does this guy remind me of somebody who was mean to me in high school? Does he look like my uncle? Like, does do I have a friend who reminds me of him? And then it's like your him or her, and it's your job to like say that they're right or not i think maybe <laughs> no i i think by the way that's a very clown way of thinking i think i agree with you yeah i think very often the the comic puts the onus on the ideas that's what i'm saying got it got it got it got it like but no i 100 percent. i've seen many stand-ups who you know objectively their material c plus like it's like it's 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 fine it's constructed there are no new ideas here but they're so likable so yeah. charming yeah and and you know it would be easy to dismiss those qualities and be like yeah but look at the joke writers it's like that is a skill being that person who can look at an audience and the audience likes them immediately that's like being six nine in basketball yeah. like that's yes. something that's a gift yes and like it should not be undervalued one more wrestling question when you are a bad guy when people are there to root against you, are you channeling any? Who's your favorite heel? Who's your go-to heel, wrestling heel? I uh, that's such a great question. Let me think. I mean, it's it's funny because I don't think like my heroes are how I play. Like, I mean, my favorite villain of all time was Don Morocco. Don Morocco, wow. Don Morocco broke Hogan's ribs. Uh, broke Hogan's ribs, uh, you know, uh, his run with Mr. Fuji. Yeah. I just, one, as a young man, that was like what I thought I wanted to look like when I grew up because he's just like a gorilla. Like he's just a big, broad, almost shapeless mass of masculinity. Like so as a young, toxic New Jersey kid. <laughs> but also, you know, he just, like him, Rick Rude, like I loved the guys, uh, Jake Roberts, like I love the guys who got so much mileage out of a, a snarl, out of a look. Yeah. You know, the 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 guys who cut promos who would sit in silence. I mean, my love affair, of course, is with the Ric Flairs and the Roddy Pipers and like yeah. the people who are so good with work, like just yeah. so quick. Um, you know, in my as a villain, when I play a villain like as a clown, like I'm fast enough that you don't think that you could get over on me, but I don't think anyone thinks like, Oh, look at this wordsmith. Like I'm, I'm ruthless. Yeah. 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 But I'm not like one of those, you know, eloquent promo people or someone like Roddy who could talk a mile a minute and just put together or like Bobby, the brain Heenan or Jim Cornette. Like I'm always so impressed with people who are so good verbally. Yeah. And what I try to hold on to is more that other type of heel who comes out and like, lets the audience sit in uncomfortable silences, says very pointed things, and then just waits for the audience to have some kind of reaction. You know, like that to me is definitely what works with like my style. So Ted DiBiase. I worked with Ted DiBiase. Did you really? Yeah, he got brought in. I don't this, for those, I don't know how many true wrestling nerds are listening to this, but another thing you need to know about WCW is part of the reason we were able to be successful is Eric Bischoff, we mentioned earlier, gave dozens of no-cut contracts to former WWF stars. Yeah. Big names. But like 
these contract these contracts did not serve the company at all. Like if they were injured or didn't feel like showing up, they could just say they were sick and they were just guaranteed money. They didn't have to go on. So when we talk about guaranteed money, we're like, you don't have to make a certain amount of shows. You don't have to do house shows. Like your money is guaranteed, uh, which is not the greatest motivator, especially for like a wrestler in their mid to late forties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's tired. Yeah. And Ted was brought in. Um, he had been the million dollar man in WWF and they were trying to groom him to be an uh, announcer broadcaster. And so I had this show called Backstage Blast. And the almost sole purpose of this show, besides like kind of this value added on DirecTV, which no one care- cared about, was we could test new announcers. And my job for a long time was being the play-by-play guy and working with new color announcers. Okay. Um, I would love to say that they were open to my advice. They were not. So I don't want to make it sound <laughs> like I was guiding them. They did not care, but it was my job to make them look good and see what they had, you know, so that, th- so I worked, I was the last person to ever work with Rick rude before he passed away. Really? He did a show with me, um, on this backstage blast that no one saw. Um, Ted DiBiase did this show a bunch of times, um, but he got really mad at me be- because, uh, one time I wore a promotional striptease t-shirt to work. And he was like, oh, great. What's happening in this play? He just thought it made me some sort of infidel. Um, but yeah, Ted would be, Ted to me, I'll say, the reason I didn't bring up like a Ted DiBiase is because I also feel like the guys I brought up had a certain naturalism. Like, Okay, yeah, you, you didn't, know, like, yes, 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 yes. And and Ted, like he, he was so, his patter, like Ted, but his patter was so disciplined like nick bockwinkle and 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 uh, ted dibiase and larry zabisco like it was almost like uh, paul jones they almost had such a cadence they were very good at what they did but it felt very much like i'm in character now. yes 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 yeah it's chad there's still more interview coming up but if you want video of this if you want to see the sausage get made If you want to see every panel I've done since March of 2020 and you're not some sort of freeloading cheapskate, that is on the show's Patreon. And thank you again to all the patrons. You keep the show going. You really do keep the show going. You're all good people. Patreon.com forward slash Brido. B-R-I-D-O. If you want to help contribute to me doing this show. Thank you to everybody who bought my album. It went to number one on the comedy charts. That felt awesome. It is available on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, Tidal, Deezer, and ASTRecords.com. I also am recording an episode of Power Moves this week. If you want to see me do stand-up comedy, every Wednesday I'm at the Fable on Eagle Rock. Mike and Stacey Holmes make award-winning burgers. And every Friday I'm at the Glendale Room for a show called Flagship, the coziest room in L.A. to watch comedy. Also, if you want to watch my special on YouTube, please go see it. Watch it again. Show it to people. Share it. Get those numbers up for me. Okay. We'll get back to the show after a brief word from our sponsors. What is the best way to handle the streaming wars? Judge all the content against each other. The Buffer Battle Podcast does just that. Joel and Tony are former radio co-hosts who pit two relevant pieces of content against each other every week to determine the winner of the week. From documentaries to dumb sitcoms, these two will help you decide who wins. And at the end of each month, they throw it all into a no-holds-bars cage match to see who wins the month. Often joined by special guests, including your boy Brido, to help decide the winners. 
tournament style. These guys have fun making fun of themselves and keep their passions for film and TV alive during this podcast. Tony's a film nerd. Joel is a music geek. And they aren't shy about their opinions. Listen to the Buffer Battle podcast anywhere you download your podcast. I'm Mike Bridenstine, and I have listened to None Taken. The ad we've been doing for like two years on Brido's show, it's all based on an inside joke on our show, but it's for listeners that haven't listened oh. to our show yet. Okay. So the joke yeah. is we always start our show with, you know, somebody as listened. a guest and yeah, and I've never listened to None Taken. And, right. and they're so, not going to get that. No, they've never got that. What an annoying <laughs> commercial. What a waste of time. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Neither of us did. <laughs> and then the whole thing ends with these guys fuck, which was like something I said once at the end of a recording, like spastically, like impulsively. Oh, you're not supposed to. I still think that's anymore. funny. All I right. like it when the girl says it. I, I, uh, hi, Victoria. This is the best. This is welcome to none taken. This is what none taken is like. <laughs> Wait, did we just do an ad? Is that what you're telling me? I, I think that's what I'm going to send him. And who knows? I mean, he's played that for the last two years. Why wouldn't he play this? This is more like what our show is. Thank you, Dustin and Alan. Those guys fuck. Thank you, Dustin and Alan. I say every week that you guys fuck. Uh, this week, uh, they fuck. Now, here's the thrilling conclusion of my conversation with Chad Demiani. This is, you're going to hate this question, but for the, I'm assuming people don't know the answer. What is clown? No, no, this is funny because I have a podcast called Stand Up and Clown, and it, it was kind of inspired by a joke, which is often at the start of that show, which is like last Monday's at the Elysian at 9.30, I ask the audience who has been to a clown show, and a bunch of hands go up, and then I just pick someone who seemed overconfident, I put a flashlight in their face, and I'm like, oh, it's so great that, could you tell the audience what clown is, please, before we get, so because a lot of people didn't have their hands up just so they could know what clown is, and of course then... Just this agonizing. <laughs> and the reality is there isn't like, there isn't a finite definition. I can certainly tell you my definition. Uh, your definition is as good as anybody's. Um, but one, I'll say this right off the bat, and this is what makes it so challenging because I mean, there's a lot of types of standups, but standup tends to look pretty similar from like 30,000 feet away, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. And a person on a stage, yeah, maybe they have a headset, maybe they have a mic, but it's like they're telling stories, they're talking. Um, and clown, like we have such huge um, degrees of separation. Like there's a certain type of clown who's really good at things, you know, like juggling, juggling okay. and acrobatics and contortion. They're double jointed. You know, they, 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 they know magic and stuff like that. And then on the other side, you have a whole discipline, which is more where I kind of come from, of clowns who revel in failure. And they revel in setting up situations they cannot succeed in, um, you know. And so, and then in the middle and of, of all that, you have like garish costume, and you have Buffon, and like you have all these sort of. Uh, but what ultimately, here are some things that are always true about clown. Um, there's no fourth wall. It's a performance style where you see the audience, you you recognize that not only are they there, but they are a living, breathing entity. They affect the show. To different degrees, you know, obviously there are some really finely tuned shows. There are other shows where the audience can literally take that show in a multitude of directions just by how they feel that night. Hmm. Um, there's always a, you know, when it's done well, there's always like a sense of joy, 
you know, and playfulness. Um, it doesn't have to be verbal. It's often physical. It can be verbal. Um, and, and this is probably the most important one is that the, the show is a shared experience that when you do this show, when you're sort of, you know, I think standups very often when they sort of take on the absurdity of life and stuff like that, you know, we commiserate or we agree, like you, you talk to an audience, they recognize the, the ideas that you're putting forward. You know, right. like that is like, cause being a lot, like the human condition is absurd, right? Like if we, any evaluation of being human is just, it's absurdity from birth to death. Yeah. And what clowns try to do is we immerse you in that nonsense. Okay. We immerse you in this stupidity. We make you party to it, a collaborator, and we create something together that kind of celebrates what's what's similar about us, but also what's foolish about what we're all going through together as human beings. So when people hear the term, well, let me, let's start with, why is it called that? Is it- Was uh, it called clown? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like, like when did someone say this is clown? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. The terminology is interesting to me. And the fact that it's a rebrand of something that everyone thinks that they know what it is right? in a way. And then when people are like, it's, it's clown, it's like, so the terms are shifted a little bit from like what people are used to. So it's a term people know, and then it's a term people don't know. Is that, if that makes it's sense? definitely a term that's loaded with a lot of uh, preconceived notions and that aren't necessarily incorrect. Like, right. And by the way, I'm not here to tell you that like sort of that drunk divorced dad who, you know, blew balloons at your sixth <laughs> grade birthday party isn't a clown, you know, that like with smeared makeup and like nicotine breath, like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not wrong that like, like that idea that we have of like Pennywise and, you know, like that they're all, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, what we're trying to do. And I say, we just like sort of, I think this modern collective of people who are bringing the work out again and, and, and using the term is like, we're trying to boil it back down to like the most positive principles and, you know, sort of really like committing to this idea of being foolish and childlike and, and playing with an audience and giving an audience permission to be foolish. Like we're trying to sort of grab onto that. And there have been attempts to, by the way, rename it, you know, the idiot wow. workshop exists. Yes. And, you know, that is sort of a little bit of clown, a little bit of long form improv, a little bit of Buffon, you know, like, but what at is the end Buffon? of the day, what is Buffon? So Buffon is highly problematic. No, it's it's um, not untrue. Um, the legend of Buffon is that like at some period of time in France, like people who were disfigured, who were forced to live on the outskirts of, of town. I like all this. So far, so good. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm pitching at Peacock. All right, so far. Oh, I've got it. Are you ready for a French ableist tale for the ages? Um so, and again, this might not be true. Like, is this lore? But but anyway, the sure. idea was that these people would come in, you know, missing legs and like, like again, it was a different time. It's talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago that people would come in and they would be able to beg for money one day a year. And the, as the legend goes, some of these people realized that the more antagonistic they were, 
the more they called out people like if they just were like please please give me help me this and that they were tend to be ignored but if they were like hey dipshit nice hat do you think you're smart everyone's like what and so because because the audience viewed them as so low status they it was permissible for them to be so like to really take the piss oh jester jester but like this was like jester on you know on um Winstrol, you know like like where the jester and and the jester too the jester has a very specific relationship right he is paired with the most powerful person okay right so the jester then has to play this game where this powerful person is easily bored uh-huh so he must do something that excites them and makes creates a feeling of danger if he goes too far his head ends up ends up in a basket right so it's definitely in that same idea of like risk reward ROI like what can we do to stand out and how far can we push our luck and it does reveal sort of the pleasure that we have in being told the truth yes and and it's easier to accept said truth from someone that we do not consider a threat yeah so um you might have seen like the red bastard eric davis he yes. does a great buffon act so that's buffon right okay. it's this misshapen body and makeup and Dean Evans um, has a, a great uh, Buffon character named Honey Buns. And uh, he's someone in the LA area that's sort of taking that character out again. I remember one of the first uh, Buffon characters I saw was Butt Kapinski by this woman, Deanna Fleischer. She was doing a bunch of stuff, but yeah, like it's a whole other style where you're constantly implicating the audience and kind of, you know, you're in this, you're playing a game with them, but you're the aggressor. Um, so all of this exists under the same umbrella. So you can see why it's confusing, yeah, yeah. but it also feels, it doesn't feel quite right to sort of pretend this lineage doesn't exist. It comes come from a larger tradition name. of like French. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you consider it a fourth discipline? I've, I've seen like Jake Kroger say that it's a fourth discipline of comedy. It, you know, it's sketch, it's improv, it's stand up, and now it's clown. I mean, I I like that delineation. I think where I, and I like Jake and I, and I, and I get it because I think for his purposes too, sending people to shows, it's like, Hey, this is this different thing that's going to be happening. I mean, in a perfect world, I see clown is more like a strategy guide for any of those things. You know, it's like clown to me is um, a cheat code. It could be for standups. It could be for actors. It could be for, you know, people doing sketch or improv. Like, it's a different way of looking at the entire experience of performing. So, um, yeah, I yeah. want to talk about that. Uh, everybody that I talk to who's done something with it, like who um, uh, MK Paulson was talking to me about it. And I, I want to say Steve Hernandez. And I want to say like a few other people, every single person to a man, to a woman has said, it's the best thing that they've ever done as a standup. How, how does it, like what does could it do for a stand up hypothetically who's who's uh performing and learning these these cheat codes i would say that and i and steve fernandez has taken my intensive and i think steve's super funny and mk paulson's super funny i know he's taking stuff with dr brown and kristen wallace um, was another yeah yeah it's these so i think if we're talking about stand up specifically so much work is done on like controlling the uncontrollable, you know, like you get your material sharpened to a point, you get it moving at a certain speed, you know, like you, you, you know, like 
you have backdoor exits, you have ways to pivot. Like you, it's, it's so much about preparation. And I think that is great. But what clown kind of teaches you, it's in the moments that we cannot prepare for. And it's in the moments that seem like a failure or a loss that actually there might be great opportunity, you know? And I mean, it's funny too, because I watch a lot of clips now on, you know, TikTok and reels and so many of the clips that do the best are the moments of chaos where like the audience is like turning over or like someone is so out of control and the comic has to then go to a place, you know, they're not ready for. Yeah. And, you know, clown kind of arms you with different tools for that. You know, a clown allows you in some cases to let the audience feel like they've taken control, even though you're in control, like, as opposed to this idea that even the smallest spark of a fire in an audience can bring the whole building ablaze. It's the idea of like, I think I can get this room burning. I think we can burn. Like it's more of a sense of community with the audience as instead of an adversarial relationship. Um, And by the way, it should be said that there are times where that approach is crucial. (laughs) Like, One of the things about clown that helps is I think we also draw an audience that's looking for that connection. Okay. And I certainly have been to, you know, stand up clubs where I'm like, this audience is here for an adversarial relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And you can't necessarily always fix that. You know, if I say, if I get in my car and I say, I'm driving to Chad's house and somebody jumps in the way of my car, I cannot plow them over in my car and say, I was going to Chad's house. That's what stand-up is like when you start. That's what it feels like when you start. Like, And again, as people get better and more, I think stand-up too, and I joke about it in Stand-Up and Clown, the show I do, there's like just the idea of like making the audience as pliable as possible for the experience you want them to have, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but I think in Clown, there is a sense of like what's going to happen tonight. You know, like I think even the way comedy clubs are designed and two drink minimums and you know like i mean it's so funny because i think there's like lore around places like the comedy store yeah and i think in some ways i'm like boy it it is hard to cut your teeth in a place like that but also after you reach a certain level i feel like that audience is about as obedient a dog as you're gonna find yeah 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 yeah. you know they're they're not they don't want to ruin the like it's basically like cool comics are coming in I don't care how unready they are. I don't care what they do. Are you going to be the person who, you know, crushes this? Like, there's very much a sense of like, get on board. Yes. Um, yes. And and it's like, and it's like, I think stand up in that carny way luxuriates in sort of the mythology of like, it's the most dangerous place in the world. And it's like, actually, you've kind of neutered all the dogs. <laughs> They and these guys talk about this sometimes too. Like they'll be like, I I go do a place where nobody knows me just because you gotta get outside your audience to say stay sharp. But it's like when I would do a room like Meltdown, like Meltdown at the height of like alt comedy in LA, when I knew it was impossible to bomb, it felt good. But after a while you're like, Okay, all right, guys. Yeah. So I think that you're right. I think that it is. And we have that too, by the way, we don't, we don't cultivate it, but it kind of cultivates itself. Whereas there's definitely shows that I do where this audience is like, this is going to be a cool night. (laughs) It's like, we're, we're cool. 
you guys are cool. And at the end of it, we're all going to talk about how cool this was. And like for clown, that's super actually difficult. Uh, oh because, no. Because what happens is like it robs you of tension. Yeah. Like we need an audience to be sort of like a positive audience, an audience that wants to have fun, but at the same time, an audience that has an expectation to be entertained. Um, like you're saying for me, you know, I always love, it hasn't happened to me as much certainly as someone like you, Brido, but like if I'm at a traditional stand-up club about to do one of my dumbass acts, like I've got some costume or I'm covered in makeup standing around with just comics talking about their websites. Uh, and then like someone walks in, I don't want to mention anyone. Cause it's like, it's like, let's just say like just a famous comic walks in and he's going to do like 10 minutes or something. And like, the 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 um the amount of leeway this audience affords this person like the idea that they're in no, a dangerous not. space is so absurd like they can just look at their notes for like a minute yeah 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 they'll yeah. just sit there and be like okay all yeah. right, hey guys and like the audience isn't like hey we're here dipshit <laughs> they're like no no it's okay you're gonna do good like it's like almost like infantilizing famous people 100 percent, and it's like that to me is like what we're like what we want is we want a game to be afoot always that's what clowns want like we want to go out there and that's why i play shows where i think the audience probably would be like what is this guy's deal like i want them to hold me accountable so that like we can like in a way that's fun like it's like in a way to say like you've paid to be out tonight you paid to park this is your time I, I'm going to bring you this joyfully stupid idea. I'm going to try to entertain you with it. We're going to have fun together deciding if it worked or it didn't. But at no point is it your job to elevate me by the sheer fact that I've arrived at this venue. You know. Have you seen Richard Pryor live in concert, the maroon shirt one? There's something about it that really excites me, which is he comes out at intermission to start it. There's no, like, perfect intro. There's no, like, no. They think that they're at intermission, and this motherfucker walks out and starts. And so people are rushing back to their seats, and, like, it's chaos. And it's, like, this is – it's, like, the most chaotic thing where he's, like, in the most control because it's, like, that's who you came to see. Everybody rush back, and you don't know what's going to happen. But he's, like, in control of it. Have you seen this? Right. I, I mean, I don't remember that exact moment, no, but that sounds amazing. You could just you could watch it on Netflix and it's right away, baby. So you can see what I'm talking about, like right away. What are what are techniques that you would give a stand up to deal with something like that? Or can you not can you not share it because it's in a class? no no. I mean I mean one, I couldn't give you any technique to do what Richard Pryor did. That's like just sheer star power. <laughs> yeah. I, by the way. I should say that I think there is like this sort of clown stand-up hybrid that actually breaks all the rules. Like I would throw Kat Cohen and Kate Berlant and uh, some other comics where they are both toying with foolishness and failure, but they've also built this like cult of personality around themselves, but like not in a way that feels manipulative, but in a way that feels that they're empowering their audience to be like, we're the best audience. We're like, there's no fear in like, we, we're not going to be cool or we're not going to be worthy of this performer. It's more like this idea of like, we've all come together as a community to celebrate foolishness and celebrate the performer and like, and that we're breaking all the rules that feels very innovative to me and fresh. Okay. You know, like that's, but 
but there's the, and then of course for me, and again, so much of this is just opinion. Sure. But for me, there's that other side, which is the idea of like, you guys are cool and cool, right? Like, I mean, why would comics think that people who work regular jobs want to hear 35 minutes about cancel culture? <laughs> like, if that isn't the greatest indictment to modern stand, like that they're like, yeah, you know, this guy who worked, you know, at uh, Trader Joe's all week and he's, you know, he's dealing with a babysitter. You know what he wants to hear about? He wants to hear about how one tweet could cost you your development deal at Peacock Plus. It's like, like if that doesn't tell you how arrogant stand up can be oh, yeah. in terms of like, they yeah. don't give a shit, but it's like that crowd so desperately has been like, it's, it almost feels like grooming. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I think what I would say for clown is in clown, like we trust that simply the subversion of the rule in and of itself will be for at least a temporary time, a point of interest. So you come out you don't say anything for like a minute and you like really, but you're not checked out. You're not like, like looking at your phone or, but you're just like really with the audience and you're just setting the mic stand up and you're looking at them almost anything you say, the first thing will get a reaction. Like we, we respect the idea that we can provide tension for which we can release. Ah. Like that's something. And you know, it's so tough too, because you know, open mics and stuff like that have become such the, you know, regular training ground, which is of course, like how much shit can you get in, in three minutes? Yes. Yeah. And, and sometimes by the way, it's good to it's good to be able to deliver fast. Like sometimes that's the perfect thing for an audience, but at the same time it doesn't leave much room for understanding that relationships of silence and space and like and letting one idea sit and bounce around in an audience member's head can be so powerful. You know, especially if it's like a very like a seemingly not worthy idea for this kind of reverence. Like that's the kind of stuff that we experiment with as clowns. God, I hate bombing so much that I should probably do this just to see what, like, just to get. Right. Or you should tell, by the way, because it, what will make you realize is that like one bombing in general is not a big deal. Yeah. But two, that bombing sometimes is the last sort of tumbler on the lock to really open an audience. Like, if an audience just feels like you can't get a win to save your life, they often go into like sort of a caretaking mode of like, they want to help you come back. Like they want, they want to work with you. They want to do the slow clap. <laughs> right. They, they, you know, and, and by the way, sometimes they don't, but sometimes we can laugh about the fact that, that they don't like, like if you just let it be about a human interaction. Um, and again, Knowing where stand by the way, also because stand up is like, let's not forget where stand ups come from. I mean, we're in LA and there's some tougher clubs in LA, but man, when you think about like clubs 30 years ago or 20, like, I mean, it was like a dog fight, yeah. you know, yeah, like yeah. you're going into some, you go into Mil Moline, Illinois, and people are like, it's the second show on a Friday, and these people are pissed off about God knows what. Like, I mean, I don't think stand up working, working, working at John Deere is what they're mad about. Yeah, they're mad. They're mad. And you know what? Then there's this smart ass on stage. Like, I think stand ups come from this like, you you're, be ready to fight from the second you go out there. Don't give them an inch. 
comes from a very real place. Like, I don't think it's like all like an insecurity, I think, but I think the world has changed and evolved. And, you know, like, and by the way, those clubs still exist. I don't play those clubs. So I can't, I would never tell a stand up like, oh, just go out there and open your heart <laughs> to, the, to all the general managers at John Deere. Because, <laughs> you know, like that would be, that would be bullshit for me. But you named it, you named I a place say, I knew, sir. So I, so I went with the, the, the number one employer of, of the place. <laughs> I mean, I go into a lot of these places and do these bits. And what I find in general is if that you have like a, a level of commitment and enthusiasm and you present them with a funny and strange idea that has shape and isn't like just some surreal exploration. Yeah. Cause you know, like if it has shape and moments where they realize like what the game is and how they can play. I mean, I have a pretty high batting average. Like I, I like everyone else have had shows where it's like, boy, this didn't, I'll tell you what happens sometimes with me is I have big buy-ins. Like one of my acts is a, um, I have a bomb vest. Yes, yes, yes. And it yes, looks yes, real. Yes, yes, yes. C4. And, yes. And I've definitely, I did that. I did this bomb vest one time. I did it twice one time, in, uh, once in Oakland and one in San Francisco. And both those times were terrible. The one was at a Moroccan restaurant in Oakland. And when I came out in the bomb vest, there was just some person who was legitimately triggered and couldn't stop saying, nope. <laughs> and just kept saying, and I was like, couldn't even be mad at him. I was like, all right, you just, this really, I really scared you. Um, and then I don't remember, you remember the old setup before the pandemic, that really great little stand-up club in San Francisco, no, it was a real I tiny room. It. I wouldn't know it. Uh, that room, which I'd done a bunch of times with other characters and clown stuff, it was too small of a room. So me being in this bomb vest in this very tight room, it just like the spatial relation wasn't working. Like they couldn't relax enough because I wanted to give them a scare. And then we all laugh about how silly it is that like that I've done this. Yeah. Um, but in general, really, like, I've just had good luck, I guess. Like, I've gone into a lot of spaces that you would not think any of the dumb bullshit I'm doing would work. I do Chatterbox all the time out in West Covina. Love it. You know, you know, this is as much a working class audience, great audience. But, like, they the dumber the better. They're thrilled. That crowd is impossible, by the way. Like, I could talk about them for, like, way too long. Like, that is, like, one of those, like, how does this exist? And How this... does this exist? I was going to say, exactly. It's it's like the field of dreams. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, how have you found this incredibly progressive, very, like, meat and potatoes, real human beings who all come, like, I mean, Steve Hernandez and um, Julia deserve medals. Like they have really cultivated like a magic kind of room. The only thing I can think of is there was also a pro wrestling place in Reseda called PWG. The only thing I can think of is it became like the, it's the only stand up show that's out there. So if you're an only, you might get kind of become kind of a magnet for like the cool oh, people. Is or also be able to define the rules more. Like because you're not like, well, this is not how it works at the Bucket Hut, you know, like. <laughs> Um, because they are like, they're told very much like, Hey guy, like they're like, there's a very open communication about what they want that show to be. Yes. And they want the yeah. people from LA to come out and yeah. that, that this is the, and you know, but yeah, like it is like, and yeah. And you know, I mean, for me with clown and stand up, if anything, I would just like, I don't, I think stand up works really well. <laughs> like there's so many brilliant stand ups. And I watch their work and I'm like, this is all brilliant. It's just like you have more permission than you think. 
you have I, more permission to be silent, to play physically, to uh, attack ideas in different ways than you think you do. See, I think like taping sets is as new as the iPhone. And before that, you'd have to have like a, like a cam. It'd have to be, it would be hard to, for you to lug this thing. And sometimes I'll have a bad set and I will watch back and I will be like, oh, they, I said that in a way that they completely misunderstood something. And so now they just like are confused. And then I like responded to the confusion. And so you saw how the whole thing breaks down. So I think maybe this would be a good way for me to like sit in my own stink and like figure out what happened like in the moment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or to ask yeah, no, them. I think, what... I think you should do it. I mean, by the way, in general, if something terrifies you that much that you know won't kill you, you know, like it's okay to be like for you to hate bombing. It shouldn't be like hating Ebola. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, it's yeah. like, you, yeah. you know, you know that like, you're still gonna, you know, have a great relationship. You're gonna have great friends. Like, you know, this thing is an ego death, right? Like, w whenever we have something that we're just like, I mean, I can tell you that like, in the last two years, because of an, in, uh, like this sort of condition or injury, I have a bone spur on my hip. I had to uh, really start stretching a lot. And I hated stretching, like, people hate Ebola. Like I was just like, I'm a bodybuilder. <laughs> and it was like, and now looking back, it's like, boy, that should have been enough to tell me that like, what a thing, like, of course I should have done more of it. Like, of course I should have figured out why this thing that we all agree is healthy makes me so angry. And so like annoyed is about me, you know, in a way that probably I can face myself if I do some of that work. Were you always a bodybuilder? You said in high school you were a bodybuilder? I well was Deli Boy a bodybuilder? So I was always into weight training in a way for like physique, you know, cuz I don't want to I'm knowing people who really do bodybuilding and do all their macro, like I don't want to present myself. Like in comedy, I feel like I'm a one percenter for sure. Oh my god, yeah, you're a but one, like in one, real life, 1% of 1%. Yeah, but in real life, I mean, some of these guys are just like superheroes. And um, but yeah, I I always lifted for cosmetics, like not the strength and like I wanted to be have some practical application. But I was always brought up in a in a culture of how do you make your chest broader, like you know how do you get a peak, like so it was never kind of the CrossFit generation of like just performance, performance, performance. Um, and um, yeah, I've been doing that since. I was in high school and there were certainly stretches where like I lost interest, but I've, I've been pretty consistent. I'd say for at least the last 12 years. Yeah. You, um, you certainly, yeah, for, you're going to be listening to this. So just know he's 50 and he's fucking jacked is, is what I, is my point. And part so. of the brand. Yeah. Part of the brand is like kind of being annoyingly more jacked than I should be for my, <laughs> it's stupid. It's like, yeah. but it's like, you wouldn't hate him. You'd be like, Oh, I wonder if I could do that when, when like now, you know, but I do want to be like, my goal is to be that picture in the back of a magazine where it's like a grandpa face. <laughs> and then I like, know the guy you're talking body, about. you know, the exact picture. I'm talking How about. much protein do you need to eat? Like to, to do something like that? Well, the thing that happens is like, I'm pretty much like not trying to get any bigger. So now like, I don't have to really like you hear all this stuff about like one gram of protein for every lean gram of muscle. And I don't have to do that. I do try to get like 50 grams of protein a day. Yeah. Which isn't nothing. Um, but 
actually not terribly hard. And you, sometimes you, I only how much eat do once you a day. Um, right now I'm about two twenty. Two twenty. Not My a lot of fat on that. Weight is like two oh seven. Um, like so, I'm a, I'm a little. I'm usually I stay heavy for the holidays, so I don't feel any extra pressure. Hell yeah! And then like as January, February come in, like right now, like I don't have abs right now. Like, but I'll have them again, like by probably February first. You can't. It's just there are people who do it, but like maintaining that kind of body all year round is torturous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, I mean. Thanksgiving, Christmas, you can't. It's tough. You got abs in December. You are. Who, who's seeing them? Yeah. <laughs> for Who's this for? Um, By the way, I had, I'm not going to blow up their spot. You can figure it out who it is if you would like, but I had a 20-year-old woman and a 30-year-old woman on the show at the same time. They both said you were hot. How do you use sexuality in your comedy? You know, that is one of the, the most fun parts I think about, like, whatever this contemporary clown movement is because to me sexuality is the is the most absurd thing like <laughs> in the best way yeah i mean just the idea of like i definitely i used to be as even like 5 6 years ago i i was i was like 240 like i was i was still muscular but like definitely over the pandemic and and stuff like that i was like oh i want to cultivate like more like a strong circus strongman kind of thing. And I, and, and, and in doing so, you know, I, I had been working regularly with a bunch of clowns that experiment with sexuality, like Natalie Palomides and Courtney Peroso and Christina Catherine Martinez and Bill O'Neill. And like a lot of us who like, when we play together, we do something called clown zoo, which is like a theatrical mask show with clowns. And there is a ton of fucking and sex and, and this and that. But like, I think the way, the reason we're able to do it is because to us, it's so funny. Like it isn't like, Oh my God. Like, it's like so hot. Like, it's like, isn't being sexy funny? <laughs> like, <sighs> like, Oh God. Like everything about, being like seductive and like, it's like, it's like we're bonobos. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, we're peacocks. We're like yeah, yeah. so stupid. And I think, but it also kind of turns us on. Sure. 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 So like, it's this beautiful thing where like, I know when Natalie and I host together, we used to like the last time and God bless her. She makes a lot of money. She bought us both these like Santa outfits for a clown zoo show. And it was like, like weird S and M Santa, Mr. And Mrs. Claus you know, and we're like, like, we're pretty like half dressed up there. And, you know, I, you know, we're just like having all these moments of like, will they, won't they? And it's like so dumb, but probably somebody had a boner in that audience. And to me, that is such a gift for that's all a, of us. That's, that does not exist in stand up. So that is fun. No, no boners in the audience. Usually no boners. in the. There's a little neon sign when you walk in. <laughs> Save it for the green room creeps. I do feel like in, in some ways stand up strangely is very puritanical because I also feel like, like beautiful men and women in stand up are always apologizing for it. That's interesting. That seems to be going away with like younger people though. Like according yeah, to their Instagram. We're talking about that celebration. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah, I'm hot. It's fun. But like for so long, it's like, I look like this, but trust me, my personality is the worst or like, it's like, yeah. Can't you just be, you're fucking hot. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. why can't we just enjoy how hot you are and you enjoy how hot you are. And um, yeah. And uh, 
I think too, we often like to turn the screw on it. Like I think Courtney Peroso has a really fun solo show called Gutter Plum. And she does it like every couple months at the Elysian. And Courtney's gorgeous, you know? And there are times where like, you know, she wears kind of scant outfits. But every time you're at a point where you're like, this is a really, all of a sudden something gross and horrifying happens. So like, like there's the, that's the play of it. You know, it's like, oh, this is kind of, wait a minute. Did she just throw up in her own mouth? You know, like, wait a minute. Like, does she have nipple hair that's four feet long? Like that idea of like, we're going to make you feel this titillating thing, but then yeah. they make you feel an icky thing yeah. or like, and then, and the joy in that, there's joy in that sort of, that's its own kind of um, adrenaline rush of um, like, I would never do something as a clown where I was like, when I try to do sexy stuff, like I'm being sincere, but I usually know that I'm trying to get to a point of subversion. Yes. Like it's never the point is like, I just was, it's not like rocks, like rock stars have it really great. Cause they can just come out and be sexy yeah. the whole fucking time. Yeah. And they didn't, they leave sexy, but for us, that's not going to happen. Right. You know, like it's going to be like kind of taking the piss out of all of it. You get to be guar. I mean, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the dream. Um, I heard, I want to get back to failure for a second because like, I heard you talk one time about risk versus danger and it was fucking fascinating to me. You said that risk was your addiction. Do you still feel that same way two years after you said that on a podcast that I heard? Well, I still sort of talk about this difference between risk and danger, and I wonder if it hasn't evolved since you heard it, so I'll say it again. Yeah. To me, I'm addicted to risk, but risk is the challenges and da- and, and sort of um, it's it's the danger you take upon yourself, okay? So when I take risks, you know, I come out, you know, I have this dumb act called dick in a bear trap where... You know, I have this prosthetic that looks like my dick's been caught in a bear trap and my ass is completely exposed and I'm covered in blood and leaves. And it's like very vulnerable, like and even like when I'm walking around, like my asshole shows a bunch, you know, because I'm climbing on stuff. And that's like, yeah, the audience is a little uncomfortable (laughs) because I'm in this outfit, but the risk is mine. Yeah, I mean, just absorb. like the sentence and my asshole shows a bunch. I, I don't hear that uh, all the time. That was just like you on don't hear paper. It it's fucking hilarious. You know, I would like to see your asshole in this in this context only. But like, so to me, that's risk, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm exposed a little bit like I'm not like, you know, uh, like and then there's danger and danger to me is when we have shifted the risk to the audience. So like, for instance, if you come out and you do like a really, like, for instance, like if when a Dave Chappelle goes out to me and does like a bunch of transphobic stuff, right? this is coming from a guy who like idolized David Chappelle for yeah. years. Yeah. But when he comes out, I feel like the danger is now on the audience because it's like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to all get up and leave? Right. Are you going to call me out knowing that I have this whole room of sycophantic fan? Like everything is... Like, there's no danger for him. He's a superstar. You know, like, you know, what, he's going to get a couple boos? Well, like, at the Hollywood Bowl, a man tried to murder him. Right. That, now, that was risk. Good yeah. for you, Dave. <laughs> no, um, no, but, like, I'm always telling, like, this is true about a bunch of stuff. It's like, you know, when you're training clowns, too, you talk about risk versus danger, which is sometimes when people are training, they 
want to pick, like they're working with someone, they want to pick them up. They want to jump in their arms. They want to drag them across the stage. That's danger, right? Cause right. it's not on you. You know um, if you, you like, yeah, you yell a bunch of racial slurs in your set, see what people will do. Like, well then all the onus is on the audience, you know, the risk needs to be yours. Right. And I'm very much too. I don't like physical risk. I don't mind stuff like, say, like Natalie Palomino's in, in one of her shows. She eats a bunch of eggs. She could probably throw up. That's right. not a big deal. Right. I mean, that's fine. I'm talking about like someone who's like, I'm going to land hard on my knees. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah. like, that is not a show to me. Like, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, I want to see vulnerability. I want to see you commit to a really foolish, small idea, knowing that we all might not bite. And like, then really take it in when you've sort of, and not like in a way that you want it to work. This is another thing, Brido, that I think is lost a lot in like clown in like people coming up in clown. If you commit to a dumb idea, I better see you out there fighting for your life with this idea. Like, I don't want to see you go, Hey, this is stupid. I came out. Mm, I guess I'm not prepared. You know, it's like, no, I want you to be like, I'm going to make this work. I will find a way yeah. to make this dumb idea work. And like, that's the risk. Not that you, you sort of came out ill-prepared and are ready to fail, but you came out ill-prepared, unwilling to sort of fail. Um, you know, of course you are failing, but like, you're going to keep trying and trying and trying. Do you know who Mick Napier is? Sure. I think a lot In of these, I- legend. yeah, a lot of these ideas I've heard people who studied at annoyance talk about like, go after the thing that scares you the most, like committing to the bit, like that sort of thing. So I was just curious if that was any influence on. I've uh, read Mick's book and um, I've never trained with him personally, never met him. I I did like ideas because, you know, I'm a long time improviser. I consider myself a good improviser too. Um, And I always did like his, the main idea of his I liked so much was this idea of like, have something for yourself. Like have, like the way I translate is, you know, you never don't ever come out with nothing. Like you don't come out with thinking, you know how the show's going to go beat by beat, but you have something to offer. You have an opinion, you have a point of view. You, you, the audience, as soon as they see you realize that you're going to make some offering to them and then they're going to decide if it's a value or not, but like you never come out and you're like, I don't have anything. I'll, I guess I'll just figure it out. I'm not, I would say that there are clowns who disagree with me on that. Okay. There are definitely clowns who are like, no, no, just run out there and this and that. I'm like, yeah, but even in running out in that moment, you can make a choice to look at the audience like you're in love with them. Like, like there's no reason to have nothing because like if you have something very tiny and just triple commit to it, it'll feel like something. Is it your opinion that the risk gets a higher reward then? Is that what, is that what, like what we were getting to with this? Um, The audience appreciates more I, I think I think there is I think I think we in clown this the idea of like that the audience gets excited to see like a performer overcome an obstacle and risk is an obstacle like like I've also seen by the way great clown acts where someone comes out in the most divine costume you've ever seen and you're like this can't lose but then they just can't live up to the to the majesty of the costume, you know, like <laughs> they've come out with so like, that's another form of risk. You come out like, and you've choreographed two minutes of the best dance ever. And then the song ends and you're completely out of breath. And now you have to do your act. <laughs> like that's risk. Yeah. Like it's, it's this thing that you can approach from so many. The point of it is 
it should never feel it should feel always joyful never easy okay you know and i don't mean like effort like because sometimes there are just beautifully effortless performers but then it's only good if it's effortless and seems like something that should require more energy like you know what i mean like you and I both can sign a check effortlessly, yeah. but no, no one wants to see that on stage. But if you could go out, for instance, and, you know, do a magic trick or do a dance move or say like a really fast monologue and it feels effortless, but we know that there was real skill involved and risk in doing it. We will, we'll, we will, that's a thing too. We will really enjoy your victories. Okay. I think that's another thing that people don't always realize. They hear a clown, they hear failure, 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 you're going to fail. It's like, guess what? If you go out there and you've set a high bar and you pull it off, audience is going to love you for it. Okay. But if you, but if you're not afraid of the failure, you can't, I mean, then it, it makes the other things, if it's called like, if it's all like reward based, then, right. you know, then, okay. Um, right. We, it's like, but, but we like, we do have to try like, like if you should definitely, we, we'll have, we'll, we'll talk offline and you can even come just do one of like these free, like workshops that I do like just uh, once in a while, just like you have to go out there and fail because you tried, because if, if your goal is failure, then failure is a success. Right. Right. So like failure can only come when it is the unintended result of an action. So if your intended result was like, I want to bomb at this, well, you You're got gonna, it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that element of trying and effort and like trying to make things beautiful and do them right. And that that's lost a lot in young clowns too. Um, you know, we all see it though, because I think what happens is people see the product of people who are really good at this kind of stuff. Like we see it with stand up all the time. Yeah. We see people who like have jokes that don't work and boy, are they able to turn the audience back? You know what I mean? Like they're just yeah. like, well, all right. And, and then of course, that doesn't stop a stand-up from going out with a joke that's designed to bomb. And then he tries to act as if he's surprised and the whole audience sees the ruse, you know, like they don't yeah. understand that yeah. how much process is in getting to that point of truly being present to save a moment, you know? Yeah. I mean, Johnny Carson was funnier when he bombed, I think. Oh yeah. That was like the thing with him. Did so I tell you that story at Fables that, again, I don't know if this is true, and I, I've, I've looked it up on Google a number of times, and I can't find it, but years ago, someone told me um, I was working in an award show. Um, I had worked with Ryan Seacrest for like three years. I've had a long, I've been around a long time, and we were working, I can't remember the award show we were working on. Um, it might have been the Emmys, but there was a writer there from um, who had worked with Johnny Carson, but now I think was with Jay Leno at the time. And he said that Johnny sometimes would look at a joke and he'd be like, can I see the other, can I see the other versions of this joke? So like he liked the joke, but he, so they would show him like, oh, well, these were like five passes we made on this joke. And he would pick the one that was like a little overstuffed. Like it was too much of a ride to get to the punchline because he knew that that joke had the, that potential on stage of him sort of seeming like, Oh boy, this is way too much. This punchline's not going to pay off. And then he'd get that moment of the audience groaning and Ed laughing and, you know, doc Severns, you know, like, so he would like in that moment, just be like, Oh, I think it'll be more fun if I can't get this joke over, but he would still go out there and really try 
to get the he just picked a harder joke to tell, okay. which I thought was so fascinating. I mean, you, you know your instrument. You know the reward is they laugh at the joke, and if you don't, I I go up on my tippy toes and tug on my collar a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Oh man, he made it look easy. Yeah, he did. Um, you've named a lot of names, but just in case uh, you can repeat them, I think it is valid. Uh, who's awesome at it? Who's awesome at clown? Oh, uh, so yeah, I'll mention some of my friends again. Um, well, one, I would say all the people I work with in Clown Zoo. Um, so Clown Zoo is a show that started in the pandemic. Uh, we just stopped a two-month run of doing shows at the old zoo, which is what we did during the pandemic. We did these shows at Wednesdays, 12.30 p.m. at the old zoo. And now we have a show uh, once a month at the Elysian, second Saturdays, uh, starting in 2023. Um, and a lot of them are building great solo work. So Natalie Palomides is one of my best buddies. Um, she just recently did a run of Nate, which you can see on Netflix. And she has a show called Laid that she's been bringing back, which is also one of my favorites. Uh, Courtney Peroso, who does Gutter Plum. This is also another show that both were like really well-received at Edinburgh Fringe. Um, Bill O'Neill is working on a show at the Elysian that I think is great. That it's called, I think it's called The Last Banana Show. Like these are just... These sort of solo shows, if you want to see the work, not in a variety setting, but like in sort of an hour-long format. Um, also in that group is Christina Catherine Martinez, Juzo Yoshida, Max Baumgarten, Ian Bracci, uh, Corey Podell. She's actually directed and devised a couple of these shows, um, including uh, one that just came back from Edinburgh and got a really great response. It was called Mr. Chonkers, and that's a guy named John Norris, um, who has been putting that up sporadically, too. Um, Eric Davis, the red bastard, yeah, I think is amazing. He got to put his show back up. Um, and there's like a lot of like newer clowns, like too, I think sometimes the value is just kind of seeing work being created, you know, like, um, there's like Nalini Sharma and Blake Rozier and Reshma Meister and Brianna Allmark and, uh, Carolyn Cumming. Like there's all these clowns coming up and they sort of have half formed shows that I think are really fun and exciting to watch. Um, God, there's so many people to mention. I would say the Yard Theater too. It's a place like look at their their offerings. Um, you know, Brett and Isaac run that place, and they put up a ton of alternate comedy, and they take a lot of risks and chances. Zach Zucker, when he's in town, I love I love working with Zach. I think his stuff is great. Um, but there's so much of it out there right now, and 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 it is one of those things where. You're going to see some bad stuff too. <laughs> that's the best though. I mean, that's the risk. Like, yeah. Like, and it's like, it's so funny because I think anytime an art form is consider is considerably new, it's easy to get like really turned off by one bad experience. Like if we uh, see a bad standup now, we well, understand the breadth of standup exists and there are brilliant standups yeah. and we know where to go. Yeah. But like, I suggest seeing some of the bad stuff because I think it really shows you that fine, um, that fine nuance that exists, even though it looks sometimes clumsy and oafish and silly and, and unformed, but like to have that fine tuned connection with an audience is really hard. And it like, it requires being so transparent and open as a performer and truly joyful. So like, it's good to see people when they can't quite find their footing. Do you feel like you're on the ground floor of something? It feels like it's like, it feels like you're like, I mean, I know that there's a history and a tradition, but for like L.A., like, don't you feel like? Oh, I it, I got to tell you, it's 
the last time I felt like this, not to bring it all around to the beginning, was when I stumbled into that job in wrestling. Shut the fuck up. That's amazing. Yeah. That was the last time I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, you have to realize too, 10 years ago, you know, I was doing shows with a group called Jetso, which was me and this guy, Juzo Yoshida. And we were doing traditional improv festivals and stuff. We had no, like Ron Lynch was the first person to put us up at a variety show, but we were doing like a two man clown act. And it was like, what, like midnight show so, or something? Yeah. The, the, uh, the tomorrow show. Tomorrow, it's, show, um, tomorrow show. Um, but, um, I remember back then kind of like, it felt kind of fun to be doing something that no one quite understood. And then, you know, a lot of credit has to go to like, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, Phil Burgers, who, uh, took over a place called the Lyric Hyperion. This is pre-pandemic and really like became a super incubator for shows and talent. And like, at that point it felt like very punk underground, but like so underground. And then when the pandemic hit and we were like, clowns were some of the only people performing standups to their credit too, but like improv and scat, like theater in general was dead but like we were still out there. That's when it felt like, I was like, oh, I think something's happening. I, and I, it has been wild since we've gotten back. Improv is a punchline. You can go up and be like, what are you guys playing? Zip, zap, zop, ha, ha, ha. Like people will laugh at it in LA. Yeah. Like Second City, like IO West, like UCB went away for a while. So like, there. I mean, I really do feel like you guys, um, what the stuff that you're talking about that you're doing was kind of like the punk rock comedy, especially since like fucking stand up is comedy store shit too. Like, yeah. so you guys became like the cool alt thing. It feels to me like you're saying like when you were in wrestling and like at the height of the NWO and like sting and all that. And to me, it felt like, like almost like a more dangerous version of I guess a riskier version uh, of when, like when I started in Chicago and no one knew what stand up was like, everybody was like, right. like, are you, do you mean second city? Like that's what it, and like, and then like Kumail and Pete Holmes and TJ and Kyle and Bronger and everybody like came out of that scene. To me, that's what it feels like. And so I wanted to see if I was insane. No, I mean, it's so hard when you're at this, like I'll, things like this, like, you know, like it, it's nice to be able to sell out classes and not even like not even know they're sold out, you know, like, like there's a genuine curiosity. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to go to these shows, especially the shows that are in development and see big crowds who are like interested in the very process of it. It's also scary when something starts to gain a lot of momentum, you know, um, momentum also means like you're attracting a lot of people who might not be right for them. Oh, Right. Um, my, not only as performers, yeah. as audience members. Yes. Yeah. I've seen, um, yeah. My agent says I should, uh, my hosting agent says I should try stand up or I came here because I think I'm going to see a cool celebrity that's like that sort of, thing. or, you know, we empower audiences, but the thing is we empower an audience. We don't empower audience members. Like the idea is that as a collective, the audience is a collaborator. It's not that every single person in that venue is now like co-writing the show with us and you definitely will show up to a show and you just realize like one person doesn't understand this distinction and so they're just start talking and jumping up and they're like well everyone's allowed to do whatever they want so i'll do all of it uh, you know like 
so like and you know in those moments you're like i totally get it comedy store <laughs> yeah. like i totally understand that desire to sort of manage you know like we're trying to stay at the edge of chaos you know like to create this thing where it feels like anything can happen and there's this sort of like infectious excitement but in that requires like responsibility of every party that is a is is um is playing you know and so when you start to talk about the audience is you know you're connected with them like yeah like i know natalie um who we mentioned earlier she did a few nate shows and now it's been on netflix yeah yeah now people know all the lines and so like there was adjustment to people who wanted to yell out the lines before they happened. And could you imagine like that happening in the diary of Anne Frank? Like you're at like the theater and it's like, Oh, it's my favorite line. I'm going to yell it out with Anne. <laughs> I didn't like it when I saw it at Pee Wee's big adventure. When I saw that live at the will turn, like I was like, just shut the fuck up and let him say it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> but so there's like, and yeah. And you know, what's going to happen too is people are going to, you know, like definitely like I know of shows that are coming out, not that I can talk about that are like more of this spirit of clown and foolishness and like really dumb, fun ideas that we all like collectively commit to. And it's all very exciting. But it's going to be exposed time, to the general like to the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the next couple years, there's definitely stuff that I think is the most reflective of the work we're doing that will be on regular television and stuff. Really? Like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. But by the way, who's to say how it's going to be received? And who's to say if we figured out like that's the thing about stand up, man, you can't you can't argue stand up translates very nicely to television. It's cheap. You don't need to hire writers. It's... You feel like it's fun to watch. You you, you know a good stand up really can hold you the whole hour and you're like you're engaged. By the way, I enjoyed your I listened to your oh. uh hustle album this morning. I thought it was really good. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate yeah. that. Do you think so? Right now, this is in LA. I talked to my my cousin, who's like a big into improv in New York, and he's like, "What is it? like?" I was blowing his mind at Thanksgiving that this existed. Is it mostly in LA right now? Is it expanding? How is that? Do you do you know how that's working? I'd say LA is definitely like a center, like a hot spot, the hot spot. Um, you have like a Las Vegas community because there's also some work there, right? You know, right, right, right. Eagle World and Cirque, um, Chicago you know, has a very small burgeoning scene. New York, New York has found more of a meeting ground between stand-up and clown already. Um, so, you know, you have people like uh, Hannah Pilkis and Dylan Adler and like, they're kind of like okay. sketch. They're kind of like doing it all, but there's definitely like a clown element and they play all these big variety shows. I would say in LA, one of the things that have helped us is that we are getting a lot of the sort of, expat improvisers who are like looking for something. So I think we have a greater body of students and artists looking to create work here, but New York's actually putting up a lot of great alt funny shows with like really interesting artists like river Ramirez. And like, so like there's a ton of really cool stuff happening in New York too. But yeah, beyond that, I wouldn't say there's any communities that necessarily toronto has a small community that they're sort of developing wow. in some ways this is the thing that makes me the happiest because like i'm always worried about things being codified too quickly yeah and like all of a sudden it's the you know ucb in and out menu and like here's how you be funny and you know like there's we're still we're still holding on to the integrity that every individual who does this has to find their own way there is no blueprint there is no roadmap 
Like if you are going to be a clown, it means you are going to be the most authentic version of yourself and you're going to be foolish in only a way you can be foolish. And that's going to require you cracking that code on your own, you know, and you have a community to support you and shows to put stuff up and fail at that we will support you through, but you're not going to be able to watch other clowns or go back and take another clown's sort of rhythm or jokes. Like it can exist um, because it just won't, it won't read as real. Where do you want people to find you? Um, hopefully a dead in my sleep. <laughs> uh, That's the, no, um, the, I just end the show. <laughs> Don't let you do that. Just kidding. Um, you know, I, I'm mostly on Instagram these days. Um, uh, the Chad Demiani. Um, also, uh, I have a link tree that you can get from Instagram where I post shows and, and classes and stuff like that. And, yeah, like if this stuff sounds interesting to you, there's so many great shows going on. Uh, I have a busy January and February with shows. I don't know when when you told me this is going to air next July. Is that correct? This podcast. <laughs> I'll see if I can fit you into yeah, probably a couple of weeks, like sometime in January, probably. So yeah, so in January things will already be in full swing, and you know, check out my link tree, check out my Instagram. I post on all the shows, and uh, I mean, check it out, and you know, make your own judgment. Like it's not for everybody, but. I have to say that like the people who love it feel like they're watching something that has been missing from their lives. Like that's the feeling I get. Yeah. Yeah, That is Chad. Thank you for listening. Follow him on all of the things. Go see a clown show. Go buy my album. Go stream my special. R.I.P. Michael Clark Duncan.